Well, there's scarcely anyone around who does not find themselves a supporter of a generalized Jesus, a generalized vanilla Jesus. You can't go very far without hearing somebody bank on his love, admire his sacrifice, commend his kindness, and really root for him to fix all that is wrong and all the bad stuff that goes on in the world. Even among those who say they would follow Jesus, there is a similar sentiment. He gets you out of hell. He models compassion and humility. He seems to have an incredibly long wick of patience. He's not too overbearing. He's definitely understanding and at the end of the day, pretty manageable. However, when I read the Gospels, I find myself thinking over and over again that this Jesus would be a guy that you would love to have a picture of in your house, but would be terrified to invite over for dinner. Because I think that this Jesus would show up and probably call out all of your imperfections while highlighting all of his perfections. He just speaks with such unvarnished, heart-penetrating, motive-disclosing precision. He tells us who He is and what He expects. And He tells us who we are and what He will not accept. See, the, the problem, if you will, with Jesus is, is what He says. What He thinks. It's really quite fascinating. So what we want to do for the next couple of weeks is, is give Jesus the mic, so to speak, in an extended narrative. We now... we teach God's Word week in and week out, and we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, but here we are in a section of Scripture in John chapter 6 that is exceedingly long, 71 verses, but really a broad panoramic snapshot of a lot of things happening. So we want to see Jesus take this crowd through a a bunch of things. We want to to listen to what He says and, and try to take Him at His Word, lest we find ourselves redefining Him ourselves. So it'll be a two-part series. The title of the sermon is When Jesus Gives Bread That's Hard to Swallow. So what we will do is look at some things that were hard to swallow that Jesus says. And hopefully, we'll walk out of here understanding Jesus a little bit better than when we walked in because we've been exposed to His Word. What basically happens here is that Jesus does a couple of miracles. He draws a big crowd. He then reveals their reproachable motives of all these new followers, and then tells them that they need to come and worship Him. And during this process, He manages to insult their religious and personal pride, distinguish Himself as the only sufficient, supreme, exclusive Savior who alone gives life to whoever He wants to. At the end of the chapter, there are less people following Jesus than there are at the beginning, but there's a lot more clarity than there is at the beginning from their perspective. For the ones that are following Jesus, they understand better His unique value and the ones who have turned away, well, they too understand better. They have heard the Savior loud and clear and they do not likewise value Him. But make no mistake about it, they understand. And hopefully we'll understand too by the time we work to the end of John chapter 6. So we're going to try to jump right in this morning and... Like I said, it's an extensive extensive chapter, 71 verses. We made it through about the first 45 or so this morning, the first hour, so we'll aim to do the same this hour. 
we're going to look at gripping declarations by Jesus. We'll cover the first one this morning, and that's in verses 35 through 48, that Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. This, this type of thing must dictate and form our understanding of him. Before we jump into verse 35, we have a, a broad set of context to kind of work through. And what I want to do is work us up to verse 35 so we can understand what is, what is going on, what is taking place. Because he pulls, pulls off of what has happened earlier to amplify his teaching. First of all, the overall context of the book of John. You might be familiar with chapter 20, verse 31, where John writes that he has written these things for the purpose so that you, those who would read it, would believe. And that you would believe in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So right at the outset, we have to understand that the Apostle John has a motive. It's an overt motive to get to your heart and all of the people who read it so that you would believe in Jesus and in in your believing have life in his name. So it's primarily evangelistic in, in, in its tone. He's unashamedly promoting the person and work of Christ. And his goal is primarily belief in Christ. Well, the immediate context of where we are in the book of John now, in chapter 6, is we see Jesus doing a couple of miracles, a couple of amazing signs. And we see this repeatedly throughout the book of John. You might remember in John chapter 2, the famous wedding, probably the most famous wedding ever, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And then John chapter 11, we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Well, John chapter 5, he had done a miracle and healed a paralyzed man. And now here we are in chapter 6, he's doing some more signs, some more miracles. And look at verse 2 with me, if you would. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. This would be one of the high points for Jesus in terms of a public following. There are a lot of people coming, a lot of people following him. But we will see as things develop that Jesus Christ is not so concerned with crowds and high numbers and popularity as much as he is concerned with genuine disciples, genuine followers. Let me say that again, just in case you missed it the first time. This is very important. Jesus Christ is not so concerned with crowds and popularity and a large following here in John chapter 6, as much as he is concerned with authenticity, genuine conversions, genuine disciples, and people who know who he is and follow after him. The modern evangelical church could probably learn a thing or two from John chapter 6. It's not all about the big crowd, but it's about the genuine conversion. That's what the church should be about. So here we have Jesus in a background of a religious excitement, if you will. John 6, 4 says the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So there's the large crowds coming and they're following him and... Jesus basically asks a strange question, I guess, if you will. He asks in verse 5, who's going to spring for lunch? Look at verse 5. And I realize this is dangerous at the 11 o'clock hour. We're going to talk a lot about bread. We're going to talk a lot about food. So, you know, for those of you who just want a carb load or something, just spiritualize it. No, I'm just kidding. It's a lot about food, so just hold off and enjoy lunch to the glory of God after. But this is, this is a great scene. Jesus lifts up his eyes and sees a large crowd coming to him and says to Philip, where are we to buy bread that so many will eat? And Philip more likely forgot lunch himself that day because he's looking around and he's like, what do we do? I don't have any money. I don't have a sandwich. I don't have anything. And Philip says, 200 denarii in verse 7 of bre- isn't even worth, isn't enough 
money to buy food. That would be 200 days wages. There's so many people. There's 5,000 men there, more than likely about 20,000 people all total, counting the women and children. There's a lot of people there. And 200 days wages will not take care of it. But fortunately, in God's good providence, there's a little boy nearby with a lunchbox, a couple of pieces of fish and and some bread. So Jesus has the folks sit down and he prays and he gives thanks. And he uses the little boy's lunch to feed all the people. I mean, just as an aside, can you imagine the stories this kid told as he grew up? I mean, his grandkids probably never heard the end of it. He's probably the only guy in history to have his lunchbox taken and used as a, as a prop in a messianic miracle. It's amazing. It's, anyway, just as an aside, as you're studying, you see that stuff, and it makes you kind of marvel. So the food never runs out. That's what's amazing. In verses 11 and 12 and 13, verse 12 says... They were filled, and he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. The point of this miracle is to emphasize Jesus Christ's deity, his power, his ability to do those things that are consistent with God, his messianic uh, resume, if you will. Jesus Christ is God. He is man, but he's the God-man. But even, even more than that, what it becomes is a walking illustration for the gospel itself, where Christ, as the bread of life, explains who he is and how he goes about satisfying the greatest need that mankind has. But the people's response, they don't, they don't pick up on that right away. And that's what gives way to this large discourse. The people's response was consistent with what they were looking forward to from Deuteronomy 18 of a greater Moses. They said, wow, Moses gave us the bread in the desert But here's this one. He's given us this food. Maybe this is the greater prophet. And even more than that, they said maybe he's the king. So you see in verses 14 and following that they were going to go ahead and take him by force and and make him king. And Jesus understands that in verse 15 and he runs to the mountain. He withdraws from them. So the people saw the miracle, no doubt saw it as coming as a divine miracle. But they they thought maybe we got another replay of Moses. Maybe we're going to have a great great feast here like Moses took care of the people in in the desert but maybe even more maybe the king is here and then there's the second miracle which is in verses 16 through 21 and basically it's it's a familiar story of where Jesus walks on water it's in all four of the gospel accounts and basically what happens is the disciples get in a boat they're going to leave to go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they're going across and as would be common in that in that time in that region, with the Sea of Galilee being about 700 feet below sea level, the cooler air would come down from the northern mountains and cause turmoil with the warm, moist air, and the result would be violent water. Well, that's what the disciples had experienced as they were on the water. The storm arises, and the twelve are are fretting in the boat. They're wondering, what are we going to do? And up approaches Jesus, walking on the water. He gets in the boat, calms their fears, and quickly they find themselves on the other side. So he demonstrates again his power over nature, his, his otherliness as the Holy One to come and to do these things. He's demonstrating his uniqueness as God. Well, the next day, this crowd, you know, fresh, fresh off of their free lunch the day before, they're scurrying about trying to find Jesus. He evaded him once. Now they're looking for him some more. They search all over the mountains and they do not find him and they cruise across the sea. And eventually, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Just amazed. This guy's amazing, they're thinking. How did he get over here? 
And now they are in the region of Capernaum, which would be Jesus' hometown area. So he's among his familiar community. And they are excited to find him. But notice Jesus' response to their question of, how did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He didn't really answer the question. They want to know how he got there. And he, he puts, puts his finger right in their chest and indicts their self-loving motives. He, in effect, says, you missed the whole point of the food. You're here for, not for me, but because you want more food. He said, what I aimed to show you was my saviorship. And instead of wanting a savior, you want a sandwich. And Jesus goes on in verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him the Father, God, has sent His seal. Jesus zeroes in on the heart of the issue. It is their priorities. It's not that they cannot enjoy a good, a good lunch. But the fact is, what has happened here with them is they have elevated material things that has eclipsed Jesus and has eclipsed the divine priority. It's an indictment on their misunderstanding of the whole kingdom of God as reducing it just to sandwiches and political rule. And so Jesus is going to show them that the food that he was trying to communicate to them was none other than himself. But they said to him, responding to Jesus saying, you know, do not work for the food that perishes. So they're going to say, okay, if we don't work for the food that perishes, what must we work for? To get the blessing. And they said to him, verse 28, What shall we do that we shall work the works of God? So they go to the opposite extreme. Before they were all about getting the handout. Now they're saying, oh, what do we have to do to get the blessing? And this really is the way that religion works, right? We hear of a blessing from God. And we say, what do we have to do to get it? What do I have to do? What, what do I have to, to come up with myself to get this blessing from God? Jesus is rebuking them for their lack of understanding and, in a sense, their depravity. It is not even on the radar that they are lacking the ability to do what even Jesus is describing. And what Jesus proceeds to say is like a dog whistle to the religious. We see this in verse 29. Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. See, they were looking for a spiritual genie that could meet their physical needs and and, and they find themselves resolved to do whatever God says to get the blessing. And Jesus says, you need to believe. That's what I'm talking about. That's what you need to do. Jesus distinguishes himself as the exclusive means to the religious blessing. You know what he does? He knocks down every other religious figure and he says, I am the exclusive means to the religious blessing. You must believe in me says Christ. And furthermore, Jesus is not embarrassed to say to them that they have nothing of value in and of themselves. What must we do? You must forget about yourself and believe in me, is what he in effect says to them. Turn away from trusting yourselves and trust in him. And don't miss the object of belief. What it says, that you must believe, period? No, that you must believe in him. Believe in Christ. Faith itself does not save anybody. Faith in Christ saves sinners. We do not have faith in faith, but we have faith in Christ. Here, Jesus is directing these folks to put their trust in, in Him and in Him alone. And then the audience then 
not liking that, they demand a sign. Look at verses 30 and 31. They said to him, what, what, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You would think that that would be sufficient, what he's just done, but they want more. Show us a sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they're referring to Exodus 16 where God provided them with the food. The manna each day for 40 years took care of them. And they're thinking, hey, if, if Jesus is pr- promising something better than what Moses did, then it's going to be even better than what he gave us. So well, maybe we're going to have Jimmy John's for the next 40 years. This will be great. They're, they're, they're thinking they're going to get something much better. Which in a sense is true, but they're missing the point again. And what strikes me in the way that Jesus responds to them in verses 32 to 33 is a bit of frustration, which you kind of see in Jesus' voice, over giving Moses a little bit too much credit for what happened. Sure, it was Moses that was the mediator for the nation of Israel, but Moses did not make the manna, he did not provide the manna, and he did not feed and fill the Israelites. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. He's even making a continuity with himself and that manna. That manna was supposed to picture forward to Christ this new manna that would be coming. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. See, this bread that Jesus is describing is much more than satisfying morning hunger. And it's much more than satisfying particular hunger for a morning for particular people of a particular generation of a nation. Jesus says this is life-giving bread for the world. And their response, of course, is verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. But they're like the woman in the well, at the well in John 4 who did not understand really that Jesus is the true bread that gives life to the world. And so that's what Jesus endeavors to explain in the first point here, which would be verses 35 through 48, that He is the bread of life. They're missing the point, so He's going to explain it. He's going to unpack it. He is the bread of life. And that is the first gripping declaration by Jesus. He is the bread of life. Look with me in verse 35. He said to them, I am the bread of life. You can't get much plainer than that. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Here Jesus establishes in no uncertain terms that He is the one who is the bread. It is He and He alone. And that is who He's been referring to all along and will continue to refer to. He's the bread. Your hunger is removed by coming to Him. Your thirst is removed by believing in Him. This will prove important as we continue because the metaphor is established right here. Believing and and coming are how you partake of this bread. But I want you to see the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here. Look what he says again. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Those verses are are, are so heavy. Who makes statements like this? Even in our consumer-driven marketing society, nobody ever says they have the best of anything. Everything is always better than what they had before or what their competitor has. But very rarely do you hear of the best. Jesus says, I'm the best. 
He's saying that He's the exclusive, supreme, and sufficient satisfaction for every soul. He's claiming a radical thing. It would be one thing to say, in this room, with this group of people, if Jesus were to say, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So that everybody in this room can be satisfied with Jesus. That would be one thing. You will never hunger again. You will never have cravings again. You will be taken care of spiritually forever if you come to Jesus. Everyone in this room, you'd say, wow, that's amazing. That's terrific. That's awesome. Praise Christ. He is, he's worthy of our praise. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't even say all the people that are in Omaha, Nebraska, all the people who are in Nebraska, or all the people in the United States, or all the people in the world, or even all the people who are alive today, right now, or in the next week. He says, for all people, all people, if anybody comes to him, you will never hunger again. You will never thirst again. This is exceedingly radical over anything anyone has ever said before. And he's not just exaggerating. He's telling the truth. If you come to Christ, you will never hunger again. If you believe in Him, you will never thirst. Who says things like this? If somebody says something like this, you either lock them up as insane or you bow down on your face and you worship Him. Because nobody but the King says something like this. And nobody but one who can deliver says something like this. But Christ Jesus says, you come to Him, you will never hunger again. Never hunger again. And you believe in Him, you will never thirst again. He is the exclusive, supreme, sufficient satisfaction for every spiritual craving and longing that seems insatiable. He is the satisfier of it all. And he holds himself forward as the undisputed, preeminent satisfier of every soul who's ever lived. That's what Christ says. You will never hunger. You will never thirst. That is amazing that Christ says these things. Because you have eaten the bread. And he goes on even further and pokes his finger in their eyes and he says, but I... In verse 36, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus uses the word translated believe here nine times in this exchange. It's a, it's a main theme throughout John, and obviously here in our context. And the idea conveyed here by Jesus is not simple intellectual assent, mere facts, but rather a whole soul trust, acceptance, delight, and embracing of Christ as the object of your faith. Over and over again in the Bible, in this passage in particular, we have the object of belief being Jesus Christ. This is the work of God that you believe in Him. The faith is affixed to Christ. He is your whole souled trust and delight, embracing everything about Him and trusting Him completely. This is much different than to, than to say, for instance, I believe in George Washington. You know, that he was the first president or that he was a great general in the army. I don't put my whole soul's trust in him for life. I do not delight in George Washington. I'm certainly not trusting and clinging to his righteousness as the basis of my forgiveness before the unflexible bar of divine justice. Belief in Jesus is quite different than just intellectual facts. Belief in Jesus is a whole-souled consumption 
of Christ in an unfailing delight and satisfaction in Him as the one who satisfies all hunger and all thirst as the all-sufficient Savior. It is to behold and to believe and to value the supremely glorious and wonderfully beautiful Savior. But Jesus says, you don't believe. Even though you've seen Him. These people had their curiosity peaked. They had their appetites satisfied. They even had their political zeal stirred up a little bit. But they had not had their hearts stirred to believe. They had not found Jesus to be irresistibly attractive. They saw Jesus to be a genie so that they could get their way. So they remained in a state of unbelief. And they had not seen their sin problem for what it is. Now you might think, and perhaps you've done evangelism or you've talked to people about um, the God of the Bible and you've explained it to them and, and they don't believe. And you say, man, what, what gives? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. And you begin to get discouraged. Jesus doesn't get discouraged and He doesn't see Himself as a failure. Instead, He rests in the sovereignty of God and the certainty of God and He understands exactly what is happening. Look at verse 37. He's confident. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I think we forget that that is on the heels of Jesus saying, you don't believe. He looks at them and says, you don't believe, but I'm confident. I understand. I am not worried. I am not a failure. And I know God's going to do exactly what He wants to do and what He will do because I understand that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me because the Father has given Him to me, I will certainly not cast out. His confidence and His certainty is is rooted in the sovereign power of the Father and giving the gift to the Son, which is the elect. He's chosen them to give to the Son. You cannot miss the fact that Jesus' confidence is, is rooted in the sovereign, free, impartial, electing power of God and their ability to do exactly what is desired. The Father has elected a group of people. He has predestined people to adoption as sons, as Ephesians 1 would say, and He has taken them and He has actively taken them and He is going to give them to the Son and the Son will take them and He will keep them and He will give them back to the Father. There is no fumbles with Jesus Christ. And He understands that nobody outside of that group, the elect that the Father has purchased with His own own Son's blood that He has foreordained that He will give to the Son, nobody else is going to come. So Jesus knows as He's dispensing truth and He's preaching truth and He's saying, all who come to Me will not hunger, will not thirst. And He knows that to those that God is open their heart, they're going to say, yes, Christ is beautiful. He is glorious. Let me come to Him. But to those who are not called, it's foolishness. And He's confident. That's a great lesson for our evangelism. It's a great lesson for our prayers. It's a great lesson for how we do ministry. I have a commitment to God's own sovereign, impartial, all-wise will. Even as Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but of the will of Him who sent me. Verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. You see sovereignty, power, majesty, authority, grace, all of that just wrapped into that verse, where Christ will not lose any, but raise it up on the last day. 
Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Do you see the commitment here of the Son, not only to become the the God-man, to accomplish His will redemptively, but also to keep and preserve the elect and keep them and then raise them up on the last day. It It is the commitment of the Son to the Father's will. This should so inflame your heart as a Christian to realize, in reality, that Jesus Christ is more committed to the Christian than the Christian is committed to Christ. It's amazing. He will not drop the ball on Christianity. He's committed to His bride, the church. And if the cross didn't scream that to you, this verse does. He will raise them up on the last day with the same certainty that Christ came into the world to accomplish the will of the Father redemptively is the same certainty that He will absolutely keep, preserve, and raise up believers on the last day. This is the type of verse that so comforts children of God. If you're in the hospital, you probably want this verse read to you. So request it. Put it on your top ten list. John 6. If I'm in the hospital, come and read it to me. Because whether you're in the hospital or if you're going to sleep tonight, I don't know about you, but I think about death when I'm going to sleep. And I I think about the gospel as I'm going to sleep. Yes, it's true. It's right. And I'm not doubting as I go to sleep because if I don't wake up, then I'll be with Him. He has the power and the authority to raise me up from the dead. I can close my eyes with confidence because of the ability of the one who is committed to accomplishing the Father's will by raising me up on the last day. I'm not going to sleep comforted by my ability to do all that God requires for me to be risen up on the last day because I'd be up all night. But I go to sleep confident in the commitment of Jesus to the Father's will in the ability of the Son of God to do that will and rejoice and go to sleep and wake up and praise Him in the morning. We lack the ability in the desire to come to Christ. The only, one that, the only way that anyone comes to Christ is by the God's sovereign grace. And it is that sovereign grace that not only brings the sinner to Christ, but keeps the sinner in Christ. And one day will raise the sinner up in Christ to behold His glory forever. And you'll never tire of singing of grace in eternity. In Christ's power. Well, he, Christ, is claiming exclusive access to God, exclusive ability to save, and a sovereign prerogative to do whatever He wants to do. He's no doubt blowing their minds as He stands there and preaches this truth to them. And this is the type of thing that tends to aggravate and confuse self-righteous religious types. And that's what we have here. Verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. See, they didn't have so much a problem with him being the bread, but it was the come down from heaven part, the transcendent Holy Savior stuff that they they had a problem with, the exclusivity stuff, the sufficiency. The Jews were acting a lot like their ancestors who grumbled against Moses in the Arabian desert prior to being given bread in the wilderness. And this word here is a fun word, it's onomatopoetic. That means it means like it sounds. It's, I think God puts words like in this in the, in the Greek New Testament to encourage pastors when they're reading it, just something fun to, to go through and, and break up a long, serious narrative like this. It's the word goguzu. 
And it kind of sounds like grumbling. They're goozling. They're goozling. You know, they're just kind of, here's Jesus with this bread of heaven stuff. Goozle. You know, they're just getting mad, just kind of leaning on each other. Oh, did he say that? And they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're having a problem with him. I think I've heard people speak in tongues when I've evangelized them. I think I've heard them goozle. I think of how dare you say that? Maybe some people here are goozling. They don't like this Jesus. This is the Jesus of the Bible. They understood that Jesus is claiming a unique authority and a position. They reference that he's come down from heaven and now he's in the same community that he grew up in, if you will, Capernaum. And they, they wonder how he could be any different than them. And this really is an indictment to any, and particularly the church, who would try to domesticate Jesus. They say, hey, you grew up right around the corner. You're just like us. We know Mary, Joseph. What's going on? It's bread of heaven stuff. You're just like us, Jesus. They missed the point. He claims to be sufficient, the final solution to our genuine spiritual cravings. He claims the ability to raise you from the dead. He claims to be the only one who has come from God. He claims sovereignty, exclusivity, sufficiency, supremacy. And they say, wait, wait, wait. You're supposed to be just like us. And sadly, many Christians, or many professing Christians, when you start talking about sovereignty, election, power, grace, obedience, sufficiency, supremacy, exclusivity, they begin grumbling. Not more theology. Enough with that theology stuff. Enough with that election stuff. Enough with that sovereignty stuff. Grumble. 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 See, these guys domesticated Jesus. He was supposed to be just like them. And they grumbled. Too many Christians, professing Christians, domesticate Jesus and couldn't even let him speak in John chapter 6 without grumbling about his sovereignty, his exclusivity, his sufficiency, his supremacy. I mean, there's a sense when Jesus speaks, he confronts all of us. And he's got his finger in my chest throughout this whole text saying, this is who I am. Don't you forget you're not sovereign. But in a particular sense, when people disregard God's sovereignty like this and grumble, he's a guilty of domesticating Jesus Christ to be just like them. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Because it's the differentness of Jesus. It's the things like his exclusivity and his sovereignty and his, his power and his commitment to do the will of God that so warms a sin-laden heart and so eases our consciences and so, so encourages joy and so produces life in the heart of a new believer, in an ongoing believer, when you realize, yes, he's able to raise me up from the dead. Yes, he is sovereign. Yes, he will keep me. Absolutely. And you just preach that text to yourself and it brings joy. And Jesus answers them with more clarity. Verse 43. You'd think, wait, you'd think good marketing would be to try to soft sell it now, right? Try to pull it back. He does it. Basically rolls up the sleeves. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered and says to them, do not grumble amongst yourself. Stop it, he says. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you catch that verse, verse 44? No one can come to me. No one is able to come. It is impossible to come to Jesus. Dot, dot, dot. 
unless, now here's the one provision, the Father who sent Him draws you. Impossible from a human perspective. You will not do it and you're not able to do it. You don't want it and you're not able. Impossible, says Jesus, to come to Him. Unless, unless the all-powerful, sovereign God draws you. How, how does that verse sit with you? Because that verse says, you can't come to Jesus. You didn't cooperate with grace. Grace invaded you. You didn't choose God. God chose you. That's, that's a pretty big verse. It's not the only one in the Bible, but it's pretty powerful here. It's consistent with verse 37. Jesus Christ is unashamedly, can I say reformed? He's pre-reformed. He's unashamedly promoting the irresistible grace and sovereignty of God. We cannot come to Christ without the Father's drawing. Now, some people might say, well, drawing doesn't mean anything other than, you know, wooing or, you know, whistling a sweet little hymn to you or something like that. And that's going to bring you, it's going to, somehow it's going to bring you to Christ. So drawing is just God's cooperation with us. Well, the problem is that drawing is a very strong word in the New Testament. It doesn't have the idea of weakness, but rather sovereignty. It's used of a sword to be ripped out of its sheath. It's used of a net to be dragged across the bottom of the ocean to, to pull up fish. It's used of a person who's been forcibly arrested by an authority and being removed from his current location. So it's a very sovereign word. The Master will do His will irrespective of our will because He's sovereign. You will not come to Christ unless God's sovereign will intervenes. Unless you have been arrested by divine grace. Unless you have been apprehended by God's sovereign grace and brought to Him. Now I understand in that process He gives you new affections, new life. He shines the light into your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. And in that process you say, yes, Christ is beautiful. He's glorious. Yes, I understand that. But you are not searching for God. None seek after God. God apprehends the sinner, turns him around and says, here's my son. And you say, glorious. But that's sovereign grace from beginning to end. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. Impossibility apart from the arresting grace of God to give you to the Son. It's amazing because, because, because Christ is saying there's, there's nothing in you that would compel you to truly value, trust, and believe in me. There's, there's no ability to do this. There's no desire to do this. If it happens, it's because not of you, but because of God and His grace. How does that verse sit? Let it form your opinion of who Jesus is and how salvation works. Because it is unmistakably biblical. It is, it is here. It is jumping off the pages like one of those kid books with the mountains. It is, he's sovereign. He reiterates it even more in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, again, the intimacy between the Father and the Son 
they're taught of God. And quoting Isaiah, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If anyone is truly taught of God, they will come to the Son. It's really a compliment with 37 and verse 44 that talk about God's sovereign grace. It's the drawing and the learning are different aspects of God's sovereign work in a person's life. If you're taught of God, you'll embrace the truth. If you're drawn by God, you'll embrace the Son. He's saying the same thing. God teaches His followers. Someone might say, well, how could you say that you know, Islam or Buddhism or any other world religion that denies the exclusivity of the saviorship of Jesus Christ is no path to God? Well, first of all, I didn't say it. This is, this is what the Bible says. But we have to understand in light of verse 45, Jesus is saying that these are false paths. Anyone who is taught of God comes to Jesus. Anyone who does not come to Jesus is not taught of God. That's pretty simple. Jesus is promoting His own exclusivity. If you're taught of God, you'll come to Me. Again, reaffirming His confidence in God's sovereignty. If God is working, teaching you who He is, you will come to Him. If somebody does not come to Christ, we can conclude they're not being taught of God. They may be as religious as you want to say, but if you're not coming to Christ, you're not taught of God. Christ alone can save He alone can bring you to God. He alone can give you life. He alone is the religious path. Jesus Christ is not a pluralist. He's an exclusivist. For He alone, as verse 46 says, is from God. He has seen the Father. He alone can make these statements that if you come to Him, you will not hunger and you will not thirst and that He will raise you up on that day. He alone has that power. He alone is the Savior. He alone is the mediator. There's nobody else. He stands alone as the preeminent one who is worthy of all worship. This is, this is tough to swallow for a lot of people in our culture today, but we cannot airbrush this out of Jesus. This is who He is. Our only choice is to worship Him or find a new religion. But you've got to remember, if you find a new religion, Jesus already said they don't count. <laughs> There's no value in them. Some people may say, that is so arrogant to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. But isn't that what Jesus says? It's actually humble for a Christian to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God because that's what the Bible says. It would be arrogant to take the Bible and say, you know what, John 6, don't like that one. It's much more humble to take what the king says and to do it and to believe it than to take it and redact it and rip it out and say, you know what, I think we'll edit it. That would be arrogance. Humility trusts and obeys. Arrogance questions and disobeys. That would be prideful and exalting of self. And Jesus concludes in verses 47 and 48, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He is the exclusive provision of God to provide eternal life. And in this provision comes ultimate joy and satisfaction as believers have been sovereignly drawn to behold and marvel and savor the only one who can truly say, I am the bread of life. And we're short on time, so we're going to stop there on that point. We'll pick up in verse 49 next week. But there's a couple of things that I just wanted to... There's a lot of verses. We've gone through a lot of verses, 48 verses here. 
I just guess I wanted to kind of fold things up neatly and give them to you at the end, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be dismissed here. But what did Jesus say? These, these are just some of the things that he said over and over again. First, he emphasized his ultimate authority. This is the work of God that you believe in me. He will raise you up from the dead. He declares that he is the ultimate authority. He has a monopoly on the truth. He is the truth. He declares that all men believe in Him, not question Him, but trust Him, come to Him and and worship Him. He also emphasized absolute exclusivity throughout this text. Everyone who knows God comes to Him, John 6.45. No one has seen the Father except Him. He is saying, if no one has seen the Father except Christ, He's saying no other religion, no other way works. He's claiming absolute exclusivity. He also says he's the only source of life. This is in the next section that we'll get to. But he says in verses 53 through 54, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We'll unpack that next week. But you have no life in yourself. He alone can raise the dead. He said that He will raise believers up on the last day. He is... The exclusive Savior. And He's not willing to share His preeminence. He also emphasizes humanity's absolute depravity. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws me. You do not believe, no matter all the miracles and no matter all the preaching, you do not believe. The whole tone of this context is the need to be forgiven, given life, raised from the dead... It is, it is emphatically saying that we are needy, but we have nothing in ourselves to get it. We need a gift from God. He also emphasizes the Father's sovereignty. Obviously, we spent time on verse 44. No one can come to Him unless the Father who sent Him draws Him. And also His ability to raise up on the last day. And finally, He emphasizes His own sufficiency. When He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus claims, and in fact, He does provide ultimate satisfaction. He alone is the ultimate expression, manifestation, and explanation of who God is. He is God in the flesh. He has explained Him. Every longing that we have in life is ultimately a spiritual issue. And Jesus Christ answers all longings with His infinite provision of Himself as He gives Himself to those who will come and eat and come and drink. God has created us as people with affections and hearts and desires. And the problem is we're running around chasing our fallen desires, trying to satisfy ourselves in all of these different areas. Infinite desires with lusts that are insatiable here. There's one way which a desire is satisfied, a spiritual longing is satisfied, and that is through Christ, who is the only one who says, you will never hunger. You will never thirst. He's saying, I am sufficient. You need nothing else but me. You need to daily feed on my greatness and my glory and my beauty. Feed on my word. But you have all of the bounty in Himself. 
That's what you have. You need nothing else but Christ. Jesus answers all of these seemingly insatiable longings by opening fallen eyes to behold His absolute beauty and sufficiency. The one who truly beholds Jesus in all of His glory is amazed and overjoyed that life is found in Him. So we eat and we drink of Christ and we continue to come and to worship Him and to have fellowship with Him because we understand that His right hand there are pleasures forevermore in Christ. He alone is sufficient and satisfying to answer all of the God-given longings and these seemingly insatiable cravings for contentment and joy. Fellowship with Jesus Christ is the answer because He alone is the sufficient One. Well, love Him or not, this is Jesus Christ. He refuses to be caricaturized, redefined, recast, but instead He demands to be heard and worshipped. He's not going to change, but He commands all of us to change. He commands all of us to come to Him and with a whole soul delight to behold and to believe in Christ. If we're going to find life, it will be found in Him and Him alone. So as is the goal of John in writing this book, may you have life in His name, even this morning. If you're an unbeliever, come to Christ and find life. If you are a believer, you know your life is in Christ cling to Him evermore and thank Him that He is the sufficient provision of God and that those who come to Him will never hunger and will never thirst. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this time to be able to look at these things in John's Gospel. We realize we just we jammed through a bunch of verses and we see our Savior just contending for Your will and Your glory and the sufficiency of His cross and the sufficiency of His person and the beauty of You extending that to people who are undeserving and rebellious in heart. Oh, Father, those of us who know Christ, we understand we know Him not because we have drawn You to ourselves, but because You have drawn us to Christ And we rejoice this morning as we are reminded of our futility and Your grace. May You enliven our hearts to behold the glory and greatness of Jesus who is all-sufficient and all-glorious and worthy of all of our lives and praise. We pray this this morning for His sake and for His name. Amen.